changing gears emotionally, I want to tell you about one of the hardest days of my life. So it was November 2012, about a week before Thanksgiving. My now ex-wife and I were going through our budget, line item by line item through an Excel document. Somewhere between groceries and eating out, she said to me, I want a divorce. And I was thinking to myself, how do we get from groceries and eating out to, to divorce? One of the hardest days of my life. Did we say Happy Mother's Day, by the way? Did we, we do that? Can we one more time. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Back to the hardest day of my life. Um, soon after that, I go, oh, my gosh, what happened? And I began to rewind all the years back to our dating relationship, trying to figure out how did we get here to the biggest failure of my life? And spent a lot of time like, traveling and going through divorce recovery books and reading voraciously and then uh, seeing my shrink once or twice a week. And, and he and I began to talk about like, what he saw over 10 years. And one day he said something really profound. He said, you guys never really were married. I go, really? I go, because we had vows, we had rings, we had a house, we had kids. He goes, well, yeah, you had all the accoutrements of marriage. And in God's eyes, you were married. But at the core of marriage, you weren't married. Because you never had a bond with each other. He said, I watched this for 10 years. We kept trying to find that spark, you know, and try to turn into a flame. Never could do it because it wasn't there to begin with. And so I go, well, I got to think about this. So I began to read everything by Sue, Sue Johnson on attachment and John Gottman, James Bowlby on attachment and bonds and theses and dissertations, trying to study all I could. But what helped me the most actually was getting into the scriptures because around that time, I was trying to read everything I could in the scriptures about marriage and divorce and remarriage and trying to understand all I could. And I was nerding out on Greek words and Hebrew words. And one day, I put a lot of energy into Genesis chapter 2, verses, verse 24. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. I study every single word in that verse in Hebrew. I love this translation, bond. Sometimes it's cleave or unite or join. Debon is the best translation of this word debak in Hebrew. And here's how I interpret this. At the core of marriage is the bond. It wasn't until Malachi we get to covenants and wedding ceremonies. For thousands of years, God would see a couple and he'd see a bond. He goes, now that's what I'm talking about. That's marriage. Bronze age couple. They got a piece of bronze. Do we make a bracelet or a spear or a plow? And God's like, that's so cute. Look at how they're debating about that. And look how they love each other and how they're making each other a priority. And they're kind of exclusive in the relationship. They've given their hearts to each other. There's a bond there. That's what I'm talking about. Holy Spirit, Jesus, angels. That's, that's marriage. That's what I was talking about in Genesis chapter 2, 24. Again, vows are important. Wedding ceremony is important. Covenants are important. But the core of a marriage is the bond between a husband and and a wife. Amen, anybody? Amen. Okay. Okay. And not only is this important in marriages, it's important in all of our relationships, our key relationships with kids and our friends and our simple churches. In our key relationships, we bond with one another. We bond with one another, and we must protect the bond. So if we're going to have life-giving relationships in our marriages and with our kids and in our church, we must build unbreakable bonds. And so today I want to talk about three tactics to build an unbreakable bond bond, right? Tactic number one is hit the bid, not hit the bed. That was last week's message. If you missed that message, that was hit the bed. Hit the bid, I'll explain. Uh, So we're going to be in Song of Solomon again this week, as we were last week. If you weren't here, it's this poetic uh, interchange between Solomon and his wife, this Shulamite woman. It's beautiful. It's all about the romantic relationship and their intimacy. And so uh, we're going to read it together, and then we're going to interpret it together. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. That's the Shulamite woman speaking. 
Then Solomon says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And then she speaks and says, I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I rose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the hands, handles of the bolt. So when you're interpreting uh, Son of Solomon, you have to look at the narrative and go, okay, here's one level. And, and then below that, there's this double entendre thing going on. So the narrative is Solomon has been outside. It's late at night. It's raining outside. His hair's all wet. And he shows up and he knocks on the door. And, and his wife says, uh, you know what? I'm already in bed. Don't have my robe. I don't want to get my feet dirty. Eh. And like, oh, that's really insensitive. And then she goes, okay, I guess I'll open the door. And then she goes and she opens the door and she lets him back in the house. At the level of double entendre, I'm going to be very careful. It's Mother's Day. But uh, he's making a, a bid for intimacy. He's initiating with her. And she's like, mm, not tonight, got a headache. And then she goes, okay, I changed my mind. Okay, I'm, very, I'm being very general here today. You can spend some time kind of parsing out the double entendre here later on your own time for fun. But that's what's happening here. So where do I get this language? Bid for intimacy, because that's what's happening. He makes a bid, she doesn't respond, then she does respond, and they connect, and the bond gets stronger. In, in Wall Street, there's this phrase called hitting the bid. And it's when one broker wants to sell some stock, and another broker says, I want to buy that stock. He hit the bid, and he bought the stock. And John Gottman, who's one of the world's most renowned researchers on marriage and bonding and attachment and why marriages succeed or fail, he wrote the book about that, he's on this research. And he's noticed that when, when couples are, are making bids for intimacy, and remember from week, week two, intimacy is intellectual, it's mental, spiritual, emotional, sexual, missional. There's all these different forms of ways we, we bid for intimacy with the people we love the most. That in, in life-giving marriages, 86% of the time when there is a bid for intimacy, it's responded to. Like, okay, I see that bid, I'm going to hit that bid. In marriages that are heading towards divorce, it's 33% of the time or less. So you could say this is kind of an important thing, this hitting bids for intimacy. So what does this look like in day-to-day -day life in marriages? Well, it could be something like this. Uh, maybe a husband and a wife, they come home from work, and uh, the wife says, I've had a horrible day. Like, it's really, really been a hard day. And her husband says, I'm so sorry. And she says, I don't think I can cook tonight. I'm exhausted. And he goes, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. I want to hear all about your day, so I'm going to order out food. You like that Thai restaurant we went to last Friday night? Why don't we go there? I'll get some food, and let's have dinner together. I want to hear what happened during your day, and then I'm going to let you take a bubble bath. I'm going to put the kids to bed tonight. What just happened? Bam! He hit the bed for intimacy. It's going to go well for him the rest of the week, okay? Here would be an example of not hitting the bid for intimacy. Both come home. We've had kind of a hard day. She goes, I've had a really hard day. And he says something like, let me tell you, Missy, I went to Afghanistan. I lost friends over there. You don't even know what a hard day is. Missed the bid, right, ladies? Missed the bid. He's on the couch for the next two weeks, okay? Husbands, got one for you, especially this time of year. Uh, you, you spend all day Saturday, and you, you trim the trees, and you plant the flowers, and you fix the pea trap underneath the sink. It's gross down there. And, and you take out the trash, and, and your wife's been out taking the kids to soccer practice or whatever. And, and then she comes home, and she does not notice any of these things. All she says is, you know you left some dishes in the sink? Ooh, ladies, ladies. Bad, bad, bad. 
And instead, what if she comes home and she goes, wow, it looks so great outside. I love what you did to the trees. I love all the new flowers. That was disgusting on the sink. Thank you for cleaning that out and fixing that. You're awesome. After the kids go to bed, I'm going to thank you again. <laughs> Boom! You hit the bed, ladies. Way to go, way to go, way to go. And your husband will be so grateful. Yeah. When, when there are bids for intimacy in any relationship, when those bids are not hit, the message sent is, you don't see me. You're not attuned to my emotional needs. And that leads to loneliness, anger, sometimes isolation and a feeling of depression. When we hit the bids, just the opposite. We're saying we're attuned to one another. Attunement leads to attachment. And we attach in those moments. We strengthen the bond. We make it more unbreakable. And the relationship becomes more life-giving. Okay? So that is tactic number one. If we're going to build unbreakable bonds in relationships, we've got to hit those bids for intimacy. Uh, number two, pay attention to your bond alarm. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Place me like a seal over your heart. This is the woman speaking to the man. Like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. Okay, so Solomon's wife is speaking to Solomon, and he's saying, I want you to put me like a seal on your arm. You know, back in those days, they'd take clay. This is like 3,000 years ago, and they'd have a seal, and they'd say, okay, I own this piece of property. So she's saying, I want you to do that on your arm. Maybe she's asking him to get a tattoo. I don't know. Could be. But she's basically saying, I want you to own our relationship. I want you to make this relationship a significant priority in your life. Take responsibility for it. Make it strong. Make it strong. She goes on using imagery saying that love is stronger than death. You know, what, what can be stronger than death? Well, one thing, love. And, and then she talks about jealousy. She goes, I want us to have a, a healthy jealousy in a relationship with each other. Now, in the scriptures, there's two kinds of jealousy. There's the bad kind, the good kind. Uh, the bad kind is an insecure jealousy. It's when you don't have a strong sense of self and your identity gets wrapped up in a relationship with somebody else. And so when the relationship gets threatened, you lose your sense of self. You become even more insecure. That's an unhealthy kind of jealousy. But in the Bible, we're, we're encouraged to have a, a healthy kind of jealousy in two relationships, a relationship with our spouses and with God, because those are the two most exclusive relationships. And healthy jealousy protects the relationship, protects the bond and the relationship. So in marriage, you know, if there's somebody who's uh, threatening the relationship, maybe there's the beginnings perhaps of an affair or a full-on affair, it's healthy to be jealous and to go, this has got to stop because we've got to bond. We've got to protect it. In our relationship with God, same thing. When God's bond alarm goes off, our bond alarm goes off, it's because we, we've, we've begun, God doesn't do this to us, but he, we do this to him. We've begun to chase other gods. We've made our goal a God. We've made our worker God. We've made our kids a God. We've made something other than, other than the one true God, our God. Jonah 2.8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so God wants to protect his bond with us. And so when we chase after other gods, he gets jealous for us. Because this relationship's exclusive. He wants to protect it. Are you following me? Okay, all right. So hit the bid. And then notice your bond alarm. Let's talk more about bond alarms. Uh, I spoke at the, the Brook Thursday night. It was a blast. You guys... God is doing something so cool through our young adult ministry here. This place was packed out. The worship was amazing. We had a great time. And so I told this story. So if you're a young adult, just, you know, check your phone for a few minutes or something. Uh, but, uh, but Chris and I have been married for five years. And uh, 
Man, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day big time, honey, when we get home tonight or this afternoon. Uh, but uh, our, our dating relationship was, it was awkward for me because I had not dated anybody for 30 years. And so on the fourth date, we held hands. I was like, oh my gosh, we're holding hands. I mean, I hadn't held the hands of any woman for like, at that point, five years and any other woman than my ex-wife for like over 30 years. I'm like, this is getting serious here. This is getting serious. We're going to the Nuggets game. And then I dropped her off after the Nuggets game. And I could tell she might be interested in kissing me. And so I said to her, I go, I think I'm going to be kissing you sooner than I thought. And she said, I wouldn't mind. Uh-oh. Woo! Oh, okay. This is really getting serious. So I hadn't kissed anybody for so long. I thought, maybe kissing's changed. You know, maybe I've lost it because I just, I haven't done it for so long. And so I went, I went home and I looked up how to kiss a girl on WikiHow. Now... In, in our young adult service, I went through the full eight steps. But, you know, this is a more mature audience. Overall, we've got multi-generational stuff going on here and online. So I'm going to do this the four-step process just to educate you because I want this message to be as practical as possible. So step one, all right, keep your lips soft. So that means two things. Like keep them soft, you know, like hydrate, but then also you don't want to pucker up for the first kiss. Like you do that for your sister or your dog. But you got to keep them soft. It's more attractive, more romantic. And then you begin to move in. Step number two, uh, do a few soft kisses. Now, keep it soft. Don't, don't go in and start doing laps or anything, okay? you gotta, you got to take it easy. Just kind of go in real nice and soft. Step three, stay at a manageable level of saliva. This is really, really important. You don't, want, you don't want your first kiss to leave a bad impression. And if you come off like you're a St. Bernard or something, it's gonna, you've ruined it forever. Okay, and, and then finally, step four, lock lips. Now, you have options here. You can do the top lip, the bottom lip, left or right, but lock lips. And I think if you, if you follow all the steps, it says do not linger more than four seconds. One to four seconds, you're okay. Beyond that, it could be kind of creepy. You're still kind of testing the waters here, okay? And then it goes on with other steps. Is that helpful? Okay, some of you should practice this today, girlfriends, boyfriends, wives, that kind of thing. All right, so... I'm like going through WikiHow because I know we're going to kiss pretty soon. But let me tell you about the first night of the first kiss. So before Kristen met me, she made a commitment to go on a blind date with another guy. And then she told me about this, you know, being totally out in the open. She said, going out with this guy, his name's Gary. And just so happens, I know Gary. In fact, Gary and I used to be friends before this date. And... uh, Gary's like a national level Christian. Everybody knows him. He's written books, you know. He's been at huge churches and stuff. I go, oh, he's a great guy, quality guy. You're going to have a great time. You're going to love, you'll love him. He's just great. And, and so the night of the date, I preached here at, at Restoration Sunday night service. I went home and I had so much nervous energy and like frustration, anger inside of me because I've got lots of betrayal issues, like lots of them. Like I got a little blister in there and it doesn't take hardly anything to pop that thing. And so I'm like, I am like, you know, DEFCON, whatever. And uh, I painted, I literally painted a whole wall in the house. I'm like, I'm just frantically painting this, this wall because I got so much energy and I keep picturing them on this date. And he's like telling these perfectly timed jokes and her hair's back and she's laughing. And then she, he reaches across, you know, he, he shares something vulnerable about his past and he reaches across the table and holds her hands as they sip some kind of $50 bottle of wine, you know. I'm picturing all of this and I'm like, they're getting connected and it's over with her and I. And, and then I, 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 was, I started getting really jacked up. So I, I was in a rowing back then. I looked up the world record for my age group, my weight class, and I tried to break the record on my Concept 2 rower down the basement for 500 meters. I got to 250 meters, and I was lifting the front end of this thing off. I'm just, ah, ah, ah. And I'm on pace to break the world record. 
halfway through. And then I, then I almost had an aneurysm and a heart attack at the same time. I fell off. I'm panting. I'm almost throwing up. And then right after that, the doorbell rings. <laughs> and I'm like trying to you know, be all calm again. I go up and I answer the door. She comes in. I'm like, oh, you know, you know she asks, how was your night? I go, great. You know, I preached to God's people and shepherded them, painted them half my house. <laughs> almost broke a world record, you know, just average night to Johnson household. I'm cool. I'm so cool. And then uh, I said, how was your night? And she began to describe the date. And I'm waiting for like, you know, a dear John moment here. And, and she goes, oh, he's a great guy. And then she said, he's just not you. Ooh, that's good. I like the awe. I got that, I got that Thursday night too. Yeah. And then even better, she says, Ron, I choose you. Come on. Yeah, come on. And then we got married like the next day or something. So. <laughs> so let me, back to the bottom alarm, okay? So let's tie what's happening here. This is really important because, you know, you're going to have conflicts. You're going to have these moments that challenge the, the bond between you and the person you're bonding with. Um, there are three layers to this, this thing that's happening. You got a thing. You got a thing below the thing. And then you get the thing at the bottom of all things, which is the bond alarm itself, okay? So, so the thing is, Chris was on a date with another guy, and, and that sort of triggered me a little bit. But the thing below the thing were my, my betrayal issues, my, my loyalty issues. Like, are you loyal to me? Can I trust you? Will you stay faithful to me? Really big deal for me. But then below that, the bond alarm is going off. Like, I'm beginning to bond with you. I've given my heart to you. It's only been four dates, but I'm starting to give my heart to you. Am I safe in this relationship? Are we going to be committed to each other? I know we're just testing the waters. We've got a long way to go yet, but that alarm was going off. Very important we notice when the bond alarm goes off that we realize whatever's happening up here isn't the real thing. It's deep down inside. Are we, are we jeopardizing our connection, our attachment? So next time... Married couples, you get in an argument and you're going through the budget between groceries and eating out or something, and, and you start going, we're fighting about something here. What's going on here? Uh, think, realize it's not about that thing. It's not the line item on the budget. There's a thing below the thing. I'm not sure what that is. Maybe you, you feel like your, uh, your retirement goals are, are in jeopardy because of some spending habits, or you're not able to, to hit your giving goals, your, your charitable giving goals, or maybe it's the 529 for the kids' college fund or whatever. But, but that's the thing below the thing. You need to talk about the thing below the thing to begin to have a productive conversation. But then even below that, you have to realize what's happening here is the bond feels a little bit in danger. And if you can talk about that and reassure each other, no, I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. Our bond is strong. Your bond becomes stronger and your relationship will become more life-giving. God wants us to build unbreakable bonds. Okay? So hit the bids and notice the bond alarm. Pay attention to it. Last but not least, uh, keep your bond with God strong. So this is interesting. In Song of Solomon, it's the only book in the Bible where there's no mention of God, Jesus, Israel, church, you know, eschatology, future things, salvation, nada. It's just this constant poetic, beautiful interchange between Solomon and his wife. But it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, that there's a way for us to read the Old Testament that will help us to connect to God. It, it says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, we're going to start going through the book of Colossians next week. We're doing a book study the next six weeks, so you can read ahead. But this verse is saying, when we're reading the Old Testament, 
we need to read all the Old Testament in light of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of everything in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. He said, he said in, in Matthew chapter 5, he goes, all will be fulfilled. I will accomplish and fulfill everything in the Old Testament. So a fun way to read the Old Testament is to look for Jesus in it. Like, you know, where's Waldo? Like, where do we see Jesus here? And you can read it metaphorically and allegorically and be playful with the text like the Hebrew people are. And so we see in Song of Solomon, we, we see God's love for his people. We see Jesus' love for his bride, the church. He says, I'm like the groom and the church is like the bride. And, and what we see is we, we see a passion in God's heart to build an unbreakable, eternal bond with us. So this, this brings us to the gospel. They talk about a failure to thrive when it comes to like, like not having strong attachments. Bowlby, who did a bunch of research on bonding and attachment with monkeys and kids, he studied a lot of like orphanages. And he, came, he coined this phrase, a failure to thrive. And I want to give a shout out before I kind of unpack this. We have a number of families here today, and we have many online that have adopted kids recently, locally, Haiti, India, Africa. And I just want to say as your pastor, I'm so proud of you guys. God's heart is to adopt us when we were orphans, and many families are adopting kids in our church. Can we put our hands together for these families? No. When Bowlby and others studied these orphanages, the orphanages where there was no attachment with a parent, no attachment with a caregiver, he, he realized these kids are going to grow up and not be that healthy. They're not going to be able to create life-giving relationships because they never had like fundamental bonding experiences when they were younger. So he called it a failure to thrive. And this is really serious because a lot of orphanages around the world, kids actually die. Talk about failure to thrive. They actually die because no one's given their heart to them. So that's our situation with God. This is the nature of the gospel. If you read the scriptures, sin has done irreparable damage to our bond with God. It was God's design from the very beginning to have this this heart connection with us, this deep intimacy, this deep knowledge, experiential knowledge of him and and vice versa. And for us to stand in awe of him day after day, exploring his universe and seeing him everywhere. But that bond was broken by sin. At at the core of sin is not, I cuss too much or I drink too much or I I, I hate or I cancel people. The, The core of sin is I want to be God and I don't want God to be God. I want to be in charge. I don't want God to be in charge. That's at the heart of sin. That's the motivation behind sin. And so God's seeing this. He realized there's no way they can fix this problem. Like no, no self-help efforts, no self-salvation efforts could ever restore the broken bond we have with God, which is why God sent Jesus into the world, God in the flesh, to show us what God looks like with flesh on and show us the very heart of God. And Jesus on the cross solved our sin problem to restore our bond. Lived a holy life, perfectly holy life, and so on the cross, he forgave our sin and he imputed his holiness upon us. Don't understand how that works, but it satisfies God. And so now if we receive Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, and we stop being the God of our lives and let him be the God of our lives, that bond is restored and then we go about building it every single day. A couple applications before I wrap up. If you're here today and you've never received what Christ has done for you, I would encourage you to do that. 
and reestablish your bond with God. Now, you may be very aware of God and have all kinds of experiences with God because he's constantly speaking to us through nature. In fact, it says in John 6, 45, all will be taught by God. God's constantly teaching us about his nature and his heart through anywhere we look if we're looking. But then God made himself most specifically known through Christ. And so if today you want to receive what Christ has done for you, then I would encourage you, one, repent of being your own God. Realize you're not very good at playing God. And let Jesus be the God of your life, the Lord of your life, and receive his gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness, his efforts on your behalf to reestablish this bond with God. And they get baptized. And in a few minutes, we're going to dedicate some kids. And what these parents are saying when they get up here is, hey, we, we love our kids. We have a bond with our kids. But we want to raise them up in the ways of Jesus. We're going public with this desire. And we need you, our community, to help us strengthen this bond and help us help them build a bond with God. Same thing happens when you get baptized. You're saying, I, I want to go public with my faith. I want to show the world my sins have been washed away. I have a new relationship with God. The bond has been restored, and I need you, my community, to help me strengthen that bond. And if you've already done that today and you're here, we're going to take communion in a few moments. I want you to reflect on how strong your bond is with God and what you can do this week to make it even stronger. But first, I have to end with a story about my, one of my favorite moms in the whole world, uh, Chris's mom. we got a picture here. Uh, my mom passed away years ago, and so Chris's mom has become like my mom figure in my life. And uh, this is her years ago with her husband, Ron. His middle name is Ray, same as me. Cannot figure that out, but if you have interpretation, please give me one. But uh, he, he died many years ago, 15 years ago uh, of Alzheimer's. Now, this, this couple has an incredible legacy. Uh, their parents were godly people. They loved God like in a, in a legit way, like not perfect, but they loved Jesus. And they passed on this love for Jesus to their kids, to, to Ron and to Betty. And they passed on to their kids, four great daughters who love Jesus. They married godly men. They're serving in the church. They're making disciples. Their next generation, their kids are loving Jesus, following him, making disciples. They left behind this incredible, incredible legacy. And when I think about the nature of the bond that they had, I think about those words we read earlier in Song of Solomon 8, 6 through 7. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. You see, Ron died 15 years ago of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's tested that bond. And so Betty took extra hours as a nurse at a psychiatric hospital. She continued with her parenting duties. She couldn't farm, and so they, she got other people to farm the land. Eventually, she had to sell all the farming gear. She did everything she could to provide for the family, and day and night she waited on this man and took care of him until his last dying breath. The waters, the chaos of life could not quench the flame of their marriage. They stayed jealous for each other to the very end, protecting their bond. And I believe their bond with each other was so strong because their bond with God was even stronger. And so restoration, as we go into this week, let's reflect on our bond with God. Let's reflect on our bonds with the people that we love the most and let's strengthen them and let's make them unbreakable. Amen? Okay, so if you would, uh, grab the uh, little cups underneath your chairs, a little wafer, and if you're not yet, like, ready to go in with Jesus, you're exploring, man, this is a great place for you to explore and ask questions. Uh, we'd ask you maybe not to participate because of what this means to us and to God. Because when you're taking the, the bread and the wine, you're, you're saying, I've received what Christ has done for me on the cross. Because on the night that he was betrayed and later went to the cross, he gathered with his friends like we are right now, 
and, and he broke bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in memory of me. And then he poured the wine. He said, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the sins of many. And then he told us, until he comes back, we're to eat of this bread and drink of this wine, proclaiming his death and the life he created out of that death. And so as you're taking communion right now, I want to encourage you to be reflecting on those relationships and what can you do this week to strengthen your most important bonds, but also what can you do to strengthen your very most important bond, your bond with God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, you did what we could not do for ourselves. Our sin, our choices against God created an irreparable break in relationship with God. And so you chose to do what only you could do. And you entered into this world and you reestablished that bond through your life, through your death, and through your resurrection. And, and that is what we thank you for right now as we remember it through the taking of the bread and the wine. And we thank you that you want us to be bond builders. You want your church to be bond builders. You want us to have the strongest bonds, the most life-giving relationships, so that people, people would go, how is that happening? Your relationships are so rich. And we can say, it's because God is in our lives. And we have a bond with him. And out of the overflow of that bond, we're able to bond meaningfully with others. And we love you, Jesus. We praise you. Receive all of our worship now as we dedicate children, as we sing to you. Receive our worship as uh, our expression of our gratitude. Amen. Amen.